1: All right everybody welcome uh, to this this uh Friday afternoon episode of the Gamekeeper podcast uh it, this is really interesting it Lanny's not here today we've got our mustachioed audio sensory specialist sitting in Rob McKinney
3: you think he'd know my name by now. Yeah, it, it confuses me. I'm looking at <laughs> Dudley. He's uh,
1: just polished up his glasses. He looks good sitting there. And this is a subject you talk about oysters all the time. I
4: love oysters.
1: do. He does. And then down at the end of the table, Toxie loves fried oysters more than a I, I
2: hear you. I love them always, actually, but fried's my favorite.
1: Yeah, so we, we made it in here. And uh, so this podcast, we're, our friends at the at, at CCA, the Coastal Conservation Association, Uh, Have been doing some uh, all kind of interesting work, but we've kind of singled out this oyster reef restoration project to talk about, and uh, it's really interesting. Rob, you went down and we were part of it, right?
3: Yeah, Daniel and I went down to document their process and take part in the oyster project that they're doing down there.
1: Yeah, So, and before we introduce some of that, Max over here, he's going to be jumping on the internet, getting us some information if we need it, and asking questions. Richie's running the board. So let's, without any further ado, we'll introduce our guest. And we've got uh, Pat Murray from the Coastal Conservation Association. He's been on here before, but welcome.
5: I'm glad to be here. It's uh it's always a, a pleasure to to be on this podcast and uh and glad to be talking about oysters and oyster conservation.
1: Yeah, that sounds good. And then we've also got Dr. Jennifer Pollack who is in Corpus Christi at the Hart Institute of uh it's, it's a Texas A&M Corpus Christi, if I've got that right.
6: Yeah, that's right. I'm also happy to be here. Chat with you all today and also it's always a treat for me to be able to be uh Partner up with
4: Pat Murray. Talk
1: about what we do. That's great. Well, we last time we talked, we we really we actually learned a lot because there's there's yes when you think about all the coasts that our country has and what's going on on the coast, there's a there's a lot of restoration efforts for a lot of different species.
4: Yes, no doubt. I I, didn't I didn't grow up around coastal stuff except when we went to the beach in the summer. So I'm I'm always thirsty to learn as much as I can.
2: You know, I, I did, but. Not that I know that much, but I was, what I, my point is I, I have a pretty astute awareness of the time when fishing got really tough. And I was more, you know, when I would go, we'd stay down there. I'd be an inshore guy more than an offshore guy. And especially, you know, speckled trout, redfish, and all of that that goes with it. And uh, I can remember all of our, you know, got lots of family from down there because Mr. Fox is from there. <clears throat> and I can remember them talking so excitedly about, this new organization and literally within year just a few years it changed the face of sport fishing down there and I you know I, I'm at 50,000 feet from this I am no expert at all but I've listened to people I know talk about it it's probably been the one of the biggest game changers for you know marine game and fish uh that I've ever known of quite honestly uh and that's just from the side listening to people that know a lot more than me about it so I've always had such fun thoughts of the organization.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, so, um, Mac, I'm going to look at you for a second. You're a young guy, and you've grown up going to the beach for most of your life. You're you're familiar with this. What does CCA mean to you as a young man? Uh,
0: With my granddad and my dad being from the Mississippi Gulf Coast, I mean, just the waterways. And one thing growing up, he would always, you know, promote the conservation of the wildlife, whether it be – a fish crow or a gaff top top catfish or a flounder and just seeing it directly affect the waters that you know I grew up going to I mean it's really cool to see people in action and then also having just the public help out and and really be able to give back so I mean it's it's a asset that looks so vast and it's hard to, to see I guess you making a change in something but when you get all together and you can put your heads together I mean it's really cool to see what people can do especially with the CCA
2: it's it's very um, parallel to what we talk about all with our all our game species we talk about and imagine as gamekeepers is if you follow the science and you do what's best for the resource you will get rewarded and I always assumed, you know, that the ocean is so big that you can't affect it. I mean, I just didn't have the clue, and well, science is proven. I, I couldn't believe we could outfish something just as sport fishermen, but we can. Yeah. And the my point in saying all this, is nothing like the proof. The way things changed uh, with the inception of, of them and the rules and the regulations and, you know, just – following the science and just like we talk about game laws and seasons and bag limits he's like we do what's best for the resource and everybody wins and you go you can't go against that literally you just cannot especially in today's world so pat i'm gonna start with you if
1: you don't mind can what what can you uh, you want to kick off and explain this oyster reef project
5: yeah and and i I want to comment y'all your comments were spot on everyone there i mean that really there's no better way to capture the spirit. Of what is Coastal Conservation Association and and everything that's driven it, and I think all of your points were really really spot on because it it's really been a collection of individuals um, since 1977, starting in Texas and spreading across the Gulf Coast, who who cared about the resource and made a difference. And maybe that maybe that story always starts that way, no matter what species, because um, you know, be it in ducks um, or 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 whatever it may be. Um, it's this really deep love and passion for a resource and the, the desire to make it, you know, often it starts with the desire to make it catch back up where it was, uh, because there's been, there's been something terrible happened to it. And usually it's over harvest. And then once it gets there, it's imagining what it can be for future generations. And, and it's easy for me to frame that up, you know, with a speckled trout or a red drum, or for that matter, like I say, a duck or a quail or whatever it might be Um, maybe better yet a turkey even. Um, But the, the funny thing about that is where does that lead you always, every single one of those species as diverse as they are, it leads you right back to habitat. And that's where the oyster piece starts to come in here is that, when I've had the, the, the pleasure to work on marine habitat for a long time through our building conservation trust and other programs, and there's probably no more fundamental piece of marine habitat than an oyster. Um, I don't know of one that I can think of that serves more purposes than that. Um, it's funny because it's kind of like so many things in life. It's, it's, it's the cool kids that get all the attention and the cool kids of coral and seagrasses you know, they're awesome. Um, they're the pretty people, but it's the lowly old oyster that is really the workhorse. It's cleaning water, um, it's preventing shoreline erosion, it's protecting other habitat like cordgrasses and seagrasses, it's providing vital refuge. And unlike a piece of coral, you can eat it. <laughs> and so it's kind of got it all. Um, the problem with the oyster and there was this great um marine scientist dr sammy ray who once said that the, the oyster's greatest peril and problem is that it lives too darn close to us and it does they live near us so we eat them we pollute them we create situations that cause siltation of them and yet they're probably one of the most critical parts of our water column and so um this oyster project that that we were so grateful to be able to partner with with you all at Mossy and, and with our friends at AFCO, um, and most importantly, our friends at the Heart Research Institute at A and Corpus Christi um, is in St. Charles Bay. So imagine the middle of the Texas coast. It's a protected bay, so there's no commercial oystering there. And Dr. Pollock and her team have um, have created an incredible network of reefs at various depths. Um, They serve a great ecological service um, for the species, everything from the base benthic growth all the way to speckled trout and redfish. But more importantly, they're doing some of the most cutting edge science, literally anywhere on these reefs, Um, be it looking into what types of reefing materials are best, depths, all the environmental conditions, all the way to carbon sequestration. You know, there's nothing probably more topical than carbon sequestration. Um, yeah, so this project where we got to build a little section of reef that, that Dr. Pollock and her amazing team um, helped facilitate. And more importantly, thanks to you all, um, we were able to film it. And it's in the process of, I think, being put in a, a a way that a lot of folks will be able to understand the material, be it sitting in Kansas or sitting on the coast, um, which is critical to get that message out. And it shows us building the reef, but then it also pulls back and talks about this greater, um, I think calling we have to make sure that we protect oysters, that we restore oysters and that we improve oysters.
4: Dudley, you got a question? I've got several questions. Um, but, uh, I, I was wondering if you guys could, could describe to me the different, you know, folks farm oysters. Um, and then you, you, I'm assuming they had these natural reefs, like, uh, before we got on camera, uh, we were talking about using these big tongs to harvest oysters, but you also see folks having them suspended like they're farming farming them commercially. Uh, can you just briefly describe uh, the difference between those?
5: Yeah, Dr. Pollock, why don't you jump in? You, sure.
6: You. sure. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. So you may know Texas is the last coastal state to actually implement oyster farming. So it was finally allowed under... The legislative code. And the way that it's been happening in Texas, but also I'm fairly certain is the way that happens most of the places around the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic as well, is some kind of off bottom culture. So if you have wild and wild oyster reef, it grows on the bay bottom, right? The way that the oyster reef grows is that the The younger generations of oysters are tiny planktonic larvae, and they cement themselves onto the backs of the older generations. And so that reef just builds from the bottom up throughout the water. But for oyster farming, you want to have individual oysters, right? You want to have a beautiful, nicely cupped individual oyster for the half-shell market to put on a plate. And the way that they do that is typically they work with an oyster hatchery somewhere. That oyster hatchery is spawning oysters in a tank in a controlled situation, onto what they call microculch, which is generally like sand or maybe even ground up oyster shell. That's a fine kind of powder. Those little baby oysters attach only one oyster per little tiny grain. They've figured the science out for that. And they grow them up to maybe kind of the size of your, your small finger, your baby fingernail, pinky fingernail. And they then take those oysters to the farms where they're going to grow them out in the bay. And the way that the farmers do that, they go to the hatchery, they pick up these tiny oysters, and then they put them into mesh bags in the water. And at first, of course, they might have a a million of them in one mesh bag because they're so small, but they grow incredibly fast in the water, particularly in the Gulf where the temperatures are so warm. And there's a lot of food like these nutrient rich waters with lots of phytoplankton for the oysters to eat. And so it can be a, a process of rapid growth where they are splitting these bags um into small into um splitting that one bag into many 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 bags of oysters as they grow in fact one of the oyster farmers here who's permit holder number one in texas um, brad lomax he is the texas oyster ranch he talks about in their first year of farming how the oysters grew even faster than they could even fathom such that they were splitting the cages open that were holding the oysters. Because they were growing so fast, they were just overwhelming those bags and even overwhelming the cages that held the bags. The, the the way that it looks if you were driving by an oyster farm is what you would see is just floats essentially on the top of the water. So those floats are holding the cages, which are below, just below the water's surface. And a lot of times what those farmers will do is sometimes they'll flip those cages up so they sit out, up in the sun. It dries all the algae out and things like that that can affect the oyster growth. And then they flip them back down into the water. And then, you know, they monitor them and they go pull them out and harvest those. I mean, they're they're beautiful, they're beautiful, beautiful oysters when they're farmed this way. Like I said, individuals, beautiful colors and beautiful patterns on the shells. And um, what we like about it, even more that, you know, I love to eat oysters as much as the next person. You know, is that you have this reliable source of seafood, but you also have a way to take some pressure off of the wild reefs in Texas, which historically has been the only place where you've been able to to harvest oysters. Okay,
1: interesting. Yes. Yeah, very. Well, Rob, what was your experience down there? It, you
3: you came back just beaming about yeah. how much how interesting it was. Well, well, the whole project was really cool to me just because it really showed how much the oyster is connected to the whole culture down there and just how everyone fishes. Every, I mean, I feel like if you don't own a boat, you don't fish, or it's not part of what you do, it's, you're not really from that area. And it was just really cool to see that. <laughs> and uh, But one of the things that I love the most about this is there's this program that they have called Sink Your Shucks, and it was about how these restaurants will take oyster shucks and then they will – bake them in the sun for six months or so, and then that's when that's when Dr. Pollock and her team gets them, and they package them up and put them away. But what was so cool about that process is, is there's a resale value on these oysters. People use them in building and roads and driveways and things like that. But for them to commit to that process more than the economic money that they could get for, to, into their pockets and putting that back into the, back into the ocean or the Gulf was very, very cool to me. I'd love for y'all to talk more about the the sink your shucks.
6: Sure, I can talk a little bit about that. We have been running the sink your shucks program since two thousand nine, working with local seafood restaurants, but also seafood wholesalers like the shucking houses. We also work with seafood festivals where you would go grab oysters, and there'd be a lot of shells that are produced there. It's a super simple process. You know, our philosophy is that a shell that goes into the landfill is a resource that's out of place. You know, it doesn't hurt landfill. But for a restaurant owner who pays by the weight of their trash and the volume of their trash that gets hauled away by a dump truck, that is a real cost for them that they're interested in ways to minimize. For us, a great way to do that is to to say, you know what, don't throw your shelves away. Let's implement a process where you your bussers in a restaurant would separate the shelves away from the rest of the trash. They just put them into a separate dumpster outside for us And then we come by multiple times a week, depending on the restaurant and the volume. We pick up those shells. We take them to our stockpile location because nobody wants to be near oyster shells that are sitting in the sun. (laughs) And Texas requires that those shells sit out for six months. So, you know, it doesn't probably take more than a month in any Gulf of Mexico weather for those shells to be sun bleached and super clean and ready to go back into the water. So after six months, they're definitely perfect. And we, um, at that point, we we do a lot of mapping to figure out, we don't want to dump them anywhere. And this is goes into this Goose Island State Park project. We do mapping and we try to figure out where are the best places, where are the places in the most need of reef restoration, reef rebuilding, and what's the best time to put them in the water and how should we be doing it so that we get the biggest return on this restoration investment. So those Once we've figured all that out, then the shells go back into the water and we usually go out there and stake out an area. We work with a marine contractor who uses a drag line and puts the shells back into the water with that bucket in an area that we've already staked out with them. So it's really this closed loop sort of thing. The shells come out of the water. They need to be back in there for the reefs to maintain themselves. And that's where our program steps in is to to intercept them from going to the landfill and putting them really backward nature intended them to restore this important resource.
5: There's, you know, there's, if I don't, you mind me jumping in. There's a point that Jenny made that the Toxie had as well, which was, um, was the role of science in good conservation. And the only reason mm-hmm. I, I just got inspired to say it was listening to, to Jenny, you know, sort of on the heels of Toxie's comments is that it's, you know, you said in that is that we're, we're determining the best times a year and the best placements and all this. And that's so critical because oyster restoration, um, if anyone who's been a part of it, it's really expensive. Um, it's really, really expensive. Like, you know, an acre of, of, of shale can be wildly expensive depending on how degraded the substrate is below it. Um, and so to be able to determine that with good, reliable science drives conservation um, just like it did back in the Redfish Wars, you know, that, that we were talking about it, that changing the way um, a coast looked because it wasn't riddled with gill nuts anymore. The same thing's playing out here. And I think that role of science and conservation has always been there. But what I'm excited about is I think people understand it better now. And it's even the, the programs like Sink Your Shucks are vitally important for getting shells back in the water. But one of the pieces of it that I think might be even more important is the educational value. Um, You know, we went to a restaurant when we were doing a part of this program, uh, the filming, uh, Good Company Seafood in Houston, Texas. And then Brad Lomax's place that um, uh, Jenny mentioned, Water um, Street, Water Street Street in Corpus Christi, same thing is that you have somebody who comes in there and maybe they order oysters, maybe they don't. Um, And maybe they don't even know anything about oysters, but then they see, oh, wow, oyster recycling. They see the signs, you know, maybe they saw the, special containers out there when they hear people talking about it that is priceless because that sends a message to people that are completely detached from the coastal environment and then if they actually can start to say you know what i'm going to go to this oyster bar here because they do this Tinker your shucks program or oyster restoration program or whatever it's called that's really important part of that program
1: so l- let me ask a question so i'm 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 picturing all these and I saw some photographs of the reefs being restored. How long does it take for the oysters that are there to populate? I yeah, I don't know because I was about to say they don't swim in there. How, how do they How do they get there and how long does it take them to to establish a, another colony?
6: You know, we have been, we're, we're really fortunate in our part of the Gulf. I mean, Mississippi Sound, as you probably know, is in rough shape right now with oysters because of freshwater water coming in there from the bonnet carry, spillway being opened. In Texas, we tend to have really good source populations of oysters still present in the bay. The way that it works is those oysters spawn and they have planktonic larvae that sit in the water column and float around with the winds and the currents for about two to three weeks. So in two to three weeks, essentially an oyster anywhere in the bay that, that produced that larvae, that larvae could be anywhere. They really get Spread around the bay very um, effectively. So, when we build reefs, like I said, when we've decided to look back at history and figure out where the best places are to put these, we put that material in the water. We've been really fortunate that those reefs have been populated with baby oysters, or what we call spat, very quickly. And I'll give you an example. We, um, in St. Charles Bay, the very first time that we built out there. It started our reef restoration efforts with CCA within 2017. We finished building that reef two weeks before Hurricane Harvey passed directly over, directly over that bay. And I mean, nobody was even here. We were all evacuated and watching this on, you know, television and just thinking what a huge loss of money and effort and investment this was going to be. We came back down here. We couldn't even get out there for a month because everything, you know, People's homes were destroyed. My house had damage to it. And when we got out there, that reef not only had looked great, the reef was still there. And this was not bags of oyster shell. This was just scoops of oyster shell that was placed on the bay bottom. But the salinity also had dropped enough from that storm coming over that it caused a whole new spawn of the oysters that were in that system. And that brand new reef that was totally bare and naked of everything was just wrapped up in baby oysters. So it can happen really quickly. And then, you know, because of the warmth of our waters, you can have a, a an adult oyster, a market-sized oyster, but an adult oyster that contributes back to the population in 12 to 18 months, sometimes even less than that. So we're lucky that we've got the oysters that are out there to populate the reefs that we build. And we're also lucky that if the conditions are right in the bays, they can grow really quickly and really make their own contribution to help. You know, populate other degraded reefs nearby as well.
5: Isn't that awesome? It that is. quick.
6: So it's great. So usually,
4: usually things that
5: produced that quickly are like bad, like feral hogs. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, don't. The, nah, it's really cool. Say that word. <laughs> it's really cool to think about something that is actually wildly reproductive. <clears> that the more it reproduces, the better the environment gets. So that's, they, that's, just
2: so you know, that's the F word around here. So we don't. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Feral hog. Feral hog, yeah. That's the
2: for, for gamekeepers in this part of the world.
1: Well, I had no idea how the, the – I just learned something. I, mm-hmm. I have wondered how those oysters moved around, and then that explains it.
4: Yeah, they're more so or
1: less – I wonder, in the way that that occurs, how many of them don't get locked up some and, and land on a bed? I wonder what the percentage well, I, is. I was
2: just wondering, is there a prey – Thinking about you know whatever hatching turkeys and you know that's one part of it. Then stuff can prey on them after you.
6: The I would like so
2: is do fish feed on them and stuff and deplete it or are they pretty immune to that?
6: Oh no, I mean this you know an individual female oyster, for example, can produce something like a million eggs. Oh wow! So they pro- it's that life history strategy where they just re- re- reproduce a ton because they know there's going to be a lot of them that don't make it through. And actually your point about how many of them don't make it to an oyster reef or an oyster bed. That's why restoration is so important is because they have to attach to something to go through their final metamorphic stage. So it's like the caterpillar to a butterfly. And if there's not a reef there or something like a rock that's stable, they're going to attach to a grain of sand on the bottom of the bay or a little, you know, particle of mud. And they're just going to get silted in. So that's that's literally the key is when you don't have like the shells going back in the water and the reefs being, being rebuilt is think of how many more of those are just completely lost to the system.
1: So, uh, Dr. Pollock, when I think about oysters, uh, this what you're telling us from in Texas makes total sense. We're familiar with them in the Gulf of Mexico. I grew up eating Apalachicola oysters we and, all did and then i've got friends that uh we, we hear about the east coast the atlantic coast and and there's somewhere around there's some smaller oysters around maybe baltimore or something help me out rob here but it just how how much of our coastline them you've the, got
2: her on the phone and you're looking at rob i know they got those little well, small i'm gonna toss in
6: this one to
3: rob yeah no thank you <laughs> It's going to sink down
1: here. <laughs> it's so, my, just, it's how much the of the the coastline uh, has oysters?
6: I mean, they start up in the, so the oyster species that we have here, the eastern oyster, that starts up on the east coast of Canada comes. That's the same species all the way, you know, through Maryland, Virginia. That's the same species of oyster wraps around into the Gulf of Mexico. On the west coast of the U.S., there's a different oyster that grows called the Olympia oyster. It's a little bit different in terms of its biology, but I mean, really, coastal United States have oysters. They're just two different species, but the this is kind of the beauty of it. You know, if you go and 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 especially for oyster farmers, right, is that if you grow up and really anywhere along the coast, you know what an oyster is. You maybe gone to a party or an oyster bar and had like the tasting plate with the different types of oysters from the different places, but there's never been anything from Texas, and so now that's that's the market that you know. Gulf of Mexico oyster farmers and and now finally Texas oyster farmers can can get into and say you know in the Gulf we have saltier waters and you know we have a unique flavor and it and it and it's something that's not so foreign because it exists everywhere along the coast
1: you know I'm I'm looking at Toxie now I've through the I've I've been working here a long time well 28 over 28 years but through the years I've been to some seafood restaurants and we've been on trips and, and Toxie was sitting at the table, and you would order you, – you love fried oysters. Mm-hmm. I, I know you do. And if anybody else had fried oysters, you ate their fried oysters as well. How, how, what are the best ways to cook these things? Oh,
2: man, it's endless. I'm like Bubba Gump was about shrimp. Yeah. But except for the oysters, <laughs> oysters, so you just, just name it. Uh, one of my favorite things, to be honest, my, my mom, my aunt, my grandmother, all growing up would make uh, the – Dressing for the turkey, and it Kevin, was the oyster dressing. Yeah, and I've it was that. out of this world.
6: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: What about you, Rob? I just like them on the half shell. Dudley, just, just raw.
4: I, I love half shell, but I've recently dis- discovered you know grilling them and you know putting a little butter, a little mm-hmm. hot sauce, that it's, kind of thing. I don't like them super dressed out. You know, no, like where you see no. cheese and stuff. I mean, it's good, but I like the oyster. So,
0: Mac. I like a po' boy. Um, I'm hard to get away from good po'
1: boy. That is good, Richie. What about you?
0: No, I'd say the
4: raw oysters. That's where I go.
1: So, are is what Dudley's describing? Is that oysters Rockefeller?
4: I mean, there's there's
2: no different.
1: What is oysters Rockefeller?
2: It's got it's like spinach on a bed of spinach and And Parmesan cheese and butter. yeah, there's there's a couple of, and I can't name the names. There's a couple of but I had some at Waverly for a couple of years as an hors d'oeuvre that are just like they're fried oyster with other treatments with it. And I would, you know, that that I think requires a larger oyster to get that mm-hmm. flavor to you know power through all that. But it's just unbelievable some of the oyster hors d'oeuvres that I've eaten over the years as good as any main course I've ever had. Mm
6: -hmm. Dr.
1: Pock, what about you? You're down there in oyster land.
6: I mean, I love raw oysters. Like I'm a Tabasco and horseradish girl on oysters. Love it. But I also do love a grilled oyster. Like my husband and I, if we get a boat sack, we'll do some raw oysters. We'll stick some on the grill. So they, it just makes it a little easier to open them. They pop open a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, they're they're like a little bit warm. Yeah. I'm kind of a purist. Mm-hmm.
5: Pat, Pat, you, what, Pat,
6: Pat, now we got to know from you. Yeah,
5: we're looking at you now. Yeah, you kind of got to go grill. That's probably the most popular. I will say this, though, it's funny. So, my wife's gotten on this kick uh, to the fried oyster thing that Toxie was talking about, but she does this like fried oyster slider. Oh, so, wow. it's like one giant oyster. Of course, there's bacon, um, <laughs> maybe a couple other things on it. And then, man, that's a pretty deadly. It's it's pretty awesome because it, it's kind of got a little hint to the po' boy side. It's got a little hint to the fried, um, just freestanding. It's got it's got a lot going on.
1: Well, that's good that's
6: idea,
0: <laughs> Mac. You wait, right your <laughs> hand. I did. Uh, so I know we've talked a lot about artificial reefs. Is there is it just so many uh, natural reefs that it's like unable to track, or is that something that y'all are keeping up with? And I, I know they're mostly you know inlet reefs, but is that something that they're struggling producing naturally. uh, So that really pushes artificial or is it just trying to keep up with the demand or how are y'all tracking, I guess, natural reefs?
6: Yeah. What's been happening over time, you know, we're fortunate in Texas. We have Texas Parks and Wildlife, which is the state agency that manages oyster reefs um, in Texas. They have a 40 plus year data set where they go out twice a month and they collect fisheries independent really standardized sample collection on oyster reefs all throughout the state so the record that we have of the condition of oysters is really incredible and we can really start to tease apart and understand what's happening but what we think is happening is is a number of things so we've had storms come through we've had spills you know like Pat said, the oysters live near us and, and the Gulf is a working coast. So things that happen in the Gulf affect the oysters. We've had drought. Um, and then we constantly have harvesting pressure happening. So the oysters get knocked back because one of these things, and it's almost like they just can't quite get up to where they were last time before the next thing happens. And we just start to see this downward trend and, you know, like I was smiling earlier when Pat was talking about how oysters are not as glamorous as coral reefs, because that's my life story essentially. But (laughs) we didn't, you know, the oysters live in this water that's very um, it looks like chocolate milk, right? Like nobody sees what's happening to the oysters under the water, but about, I would say about 20 years ago, there were a couple of really important scientific surveys that happened across the world. And they said, You know, without question, oyster reefs are one of the most imperiled, threatened marine habitats out there with something like 85 to 90 percent loss across the whole world. And so that really put a light bulb on for people saying what's happening with oysters, because it was all sort of happening right in front of everyone, but sort of out of sight and out of mind. And that's that's why restoration of oyster reefs really has exploded in response to that to say we've got to do something
5: and that's such an important point you're making because the the funny thing about an oyster is you really can reach this point of no return in certain areas and and we see that in some of our restoration areas um where let's say in a given bay it was maybe over harvested down close to the bed and then you get the environmental disaster on top of it and siltations over it so now it's just barren mud and as as Jenny mentioned earlier, at that point, there's no hard substrate. There's no hard substrate. There's nothing. You can have a wildly abundant, you know, larval presence. And so what? It doesn't do any good. So you got that problem. So you got to then go get down crushed limestone or, or concrete or whatever. And then there's the other side of that, which go up to New York Harbor, where they're doing the billion oyster project. And they are putting down hard substrate, but there's no ambient larvae. So, you know, we take for granted in, in a lot on the Gulf Coast, particularly the sort of Western Gulf, is you drop a rock on the bottom. We darn near drop a tennis shoe on the bottom and you come back in a number of months and you're going to maybe, if it's the right time, you're going to have oysters growing on your tennis shoe. <laughs> um, and But you go drop a bunch of hard substrate in New York Harbor if you don't go in and spat it, you know, um, Jenny referenced spats, you know, basically populated. Uh, You'll come back in a year and you got. A rock. And so you can get this point of degradation where it, it can become pretty provocative to get something to grow, which shows the importance of being proactive in conservation. And particularly with something like oysters, when we look up globally and say, wow, everyone's talking about marine habitat, which is great, but we got to make sure oysters are part of that discussion, like a critical part of it.
4: So, you know other than joining the cca or or other conservation organizations how how can the public help like so just say you have a house on the bay in in uh, texas or something is there can you release oyster shells around your pier uh you know is there any way the public can just you know volunteer and and take it into their hands
6: yeah, there's there are volunteer opportunities for sure. You know, we try to host at least two community-based restoration events every year to get the public out to help us with their hands to rebuild reefs. You know, we we rebuild you know, tens of dozens of acres of reef at a time using a barge, right? Where we hire a marine contractor to go out there and put this material back in the water. However, If you don't live where that barge was working or you didn't happen to be driving by that week, you would never know it happened. And so we really feel strongly about trying to invite people out. You know, you might not have a boat. You might not fish. You might not really have a connection to this bay that's in your community. But let us come show you how important it is and what amazing things are happening under the water. So we get people out. We bag up recycled oyster shells from the sink your shucks program we put them into biodegradable mesh bags we put those bags onto the bay bottom and and that forms a nucleus nucleus for those um, oyster larvae to attach to and although it's a lot of work and it takes a lot of hands and it takes a lot of hours and the result of that is not a bunch it's not acres and acres of reef it's a very small patch of reef that we restore but you have all these people now who have experienced something. You've created this culture of stewardship for people. I mean, kids from local schools, all the way up to tourists who are visiting, all the way up to elder hostlers who have grown up in this area and now are retired. And um, I think that that's what we hope to do, right, is spread the message. And then those people spread the message. And, you know, there's a there's a better sense of how important these resources are and how important conservation is, because it's a lot of work to restore these things if they're not preserved.
5: You can also, you know, wherever you like to go eat oysters in a coastal environment, ask them if they, ha- if they have a shell recycling program, yes. you know?
2: I mean, it, I, it doesn't hurt that. The word, the, the big buzzword in the whole, you know, science, politics, business, sustainability, you know, and major corporations, you know, they have this sustainability plan and often it's just a PR campaign. And, but, you know, the point is, um, what you've just described is a, and when you said the words 80 and 90% decrease, I mean, I just, my heart skipped a beat, you know, and something that another resource that we all love because, you know, we love to eat it and we love what it does. I mean, it's so critical to the whole Marine life. Um, It seems like there would be a way to go and I'm a marketing guy by nature you know go beyond the shucks program but you know where you could get consumers to ask about you know if you put pressure on from the consumer side you're going to get results it's like where's your sustainability plan now i'm not smart enough to know all the details it's more to that than returning the shucks that's a big one but it just seems to me something this critical deserves even being backed up by some laws about sustainability practices to me, I mean, it would just not to rain on anybody's parade that's in that business, but, um, you know, even if it meant funding some of the sounds like the oyster farming can create a better product and, you know, a better ocean for us all. So it yeah. seems like, it's, you know, there would be such a good, yeah.
6: It's such a good point. I'll tell you, I mean, it's, you're spot on. One of the restaurateurs that we work with has told us, In recent years, it hasn't been forever, that this is a customer demand thing. Or if there are conferences and things coming to town and they're picking the restaurants that they want to send their folks to, they will say, what are you doing? What are you doing? What is your sustainability ethic? What are you doing to the environment? You're a seafood restaurant. What are you doing to give back? So it is coming. Yeah, it's coming from the like people are using their dollars to go one place or another because of these sorts of actions
5: yeah it matters and, and and there is that's the i think a lot of that encapsulated sort of the whole big message of saying you know mariculture is going to continue to play a bigger and bigger role there's no doubt about it um there's there's still room for commercial uh oystering as well i mean there's there's there are sustainable ways to do it and there's there's a balance there but it's it's acknowledging that we're in a state of disarray right now in terms of yeah, our
2: you know so, you know you got to acknowledge it. I was thinking about the same thing. it's just that we're wasted i hate I hate to be a bus killer, but I mean you sit there and we waste as a whatever a government as politically or whatever as agencies just waste money on political popularity things when something like this that you talk about how critical our just forget the industry for restaurants and how much we love to eat them the critical nature for our waters. And yeah. the kind of shape we're in today in our waters, and what this could mean if we really put some teeth behind it, you know. God bless yeah. y'all for the work you do already. But it, you know, our philosophy here with gamekeepers, it's not enough. I mean, we do obviously cherish and champion all the great conservation organizations, but we don't like to sit back and point fingers at those people and say it's all up to them. We say it's up to everybody and every person everywhere, you know. And that should be the way that I I guess, you know, it hit me harder because I didn't have the awareness level. I knew a little bit about it, but not to the degree, like listen to this and listen to Daniel talk about what we're involved in. And then y'all today, Uh, but just, it just, when it's this clear, there shouldn't be a question that resources are provided. Whatever's needed. Just whatever's needed. It's, it's like one of the vital things of taking care of the earth is taking care of the water. Or we won't have yeah. on Earth, you know? Yeah. And, and oysters
5: oysters are so fundamental to that. I mean, you know, you think about when it's interesting. I, I thought Jenny's example of the hurricane hitting was a good one, is that you come back and all these houses are destroyed, which is terrible, and the uh, and the roads, the infrastructure, and all of these things are destroyed. <coughs> and remarkably, what was still standing, the oyster reef. Well, there's a hidden message there because of all the, you know, oysters – we, we think about what they do in the water column. We think about where they serve sort of the greater eco. And you hear a lot of this talk of coastal resilience and, and erosion protection and sea level rise and all these sort of things. Well, in the end, the oyster is a solution to a lot of those problems. I mean, you know, it's the roadblock. It, it is the aquatic roadblock that it, it is so critical. And if those beds are strong and they have ridges to them where they really are protecting um, that coastal environment, that is – the first and foremost and best and natural way to protect that coast. And I know that's something that Jenny and her team and others at the Heart Research Institute work diligently on. Uh,
4: It's interesting to me, you know, you, you put those reefs in, I was watching tidbits of of the the video production and uh, you know, within a very small amount of time, you know, not only are the oysters populating those beds, but trout and redfish are moving in to hang out around them and and people are finding them and uh, realizing that's a good place to fish so you're bringing people to that area helping the economy Um, so just just throwing some oyster shells out and it just makes a new resource
1: so dr dr pock let me ask this question and we we may not have we may have covered it and but I, I just want to make sure, can, can we make sure we explain what the oysters do to help the, the, these, these waters and the estuaries? And if we didn't have oysters, what would, we be, what would it be looking like?
6: Yeah, Pat talked through a lot of this, and I'll reiterate probably all the points that he made. And this is actually one of the great things about working with oysters is pretty much everybody wants more oysters in the water. What you know, once you learn about what they do, whether you like to eat them, obviously, oysters provide this great food resource and generate um, dollars for coastal economies. But they also are filter feeders, so as they're filtering out their food from the water, they're also making it cleaner and clearer, so they're removing impurities and things like that excess nutrients from the water from their filter feeding. They increase biodiversity, you know, there are things tiny little fish, shrimp, and crabs that you will only find in an oyster reef. You're not going to find them next door on the bare bottom, muddy bottom. You're not going to find it over in a seagrass bed. You're only going to find it on an oyster reef. So if you lose the reef, you lose that unique community of organisms that's living there. They they form these, you know, three-dimensional complex reef structures. And so when those are located near the shoreline, you know, when the waves are coming across the bay, those are natural breakwaters. So you have this you have this built-in kind of natural breakwater structure that helps protect infrastructure or salt marshes or other habitats that are next to it. And then, you know, the last point that Pat made that I'll, I'll end with as well, because we know the least about it, but there's a lot of interest right now in the ability of oysters to capture and store carbon. So, you know, there's been a lot of interest over many years now for investments in planting trees, right? Because the trees can photosynthesize and pull co2 out of the atmosphere there's been interest translating that to the coast in uh, marshes so protecting salt marshes because they're plants as well and they also photosynthesize and pull carbon out of the air oysters aren't plants but oysters eat enormous amount of plants because they eat enormous amounts of phytoplankton and that phytoplankton is growing you I mean that's why our bays are the color that they are they're incredibly productive And the oysters concentrate down that phytoplankton that's in the water column that's taken up that CO2 already, and they move it to the sediments where it gets silted over and trapped. And that's removed from circulation from the atmosphere as well. So this is like a new piece that we're really trying to unlock with what oysters can be doing for us that really may help us to increase the the number of groups who are willing to invest in conservation and restoration of oyster reefs. But also just helping reduce CO2 levels in a world where you know people are trying to drive electric cars, and it seems like every little thing helps. and if, if this is one way we can get more investments in conservation and restoration, then we definitely want to figure out what the what the numbers are. So
2: So you said that we woke up one day and realized maybe we'd lost 80 percent. Is that, yeah. right? Is that what you said? Yeah. So, yes. Couldn't you? Couldn't somebody in the scientific community, use somebody, even if it's just a you know, a guess or an estimate, what impact could that have had on? I mean, that's a lot of ground. That's a lot of water. I mean, you 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 talked about the range of oysters and all around the world and the whole coastal system of the North America and all. What that could be a major contributor to what's going on with you know whatever's going on right now, um, seems like you could quantify, you know, obviously it won't be exact, but you could probably make a pretty big number. That's one of the things, I mean, again, when something real like this, potentially, I know maybe you don't have those da- that data yet, but it seemed like that'd be, I'd love to have the number to show what impact that has. Cause I mean, if we're going to turn things around like we need to take care of the earth, it's going to take everything. And if it's that big a deal in oysters, I guess my secondary question of that is how can we get back to the numbers we should be if we're only saving part of the shucks that are, I mean, are there other ways to establish reefs, but then, you know, used or reused uh, shells? That would Ooh. be my question. Otherwise, <laughs> it's going to be hard. And this was some big this questions. Be, yeah, that's, I mean, I'm just saying, how do we get back to where we need to be, you know?
5: Hey, I I will tell you this. I told Jenny this when we were doing this podcast from last time. I said, these guys ask the best questions. <laughs> I do a lot of podcasts and I always walk away and go, man, I'm winded. <laughs> it's like, these are great, thoughtful, deep questions. You get that. I mean, they're really complex. Um, hence this time when I came back, I came with a PhD. <laughs>
2: like I got no, to have a
5: backup here. But look, man. we
2: love our earth. We live on, you know, we look at, Managing wildlife, and you know, we got a care capacity in place, and you know, you have to live within the carrying capacity. Uh, I agree completely. I mean, I think you're
5: absolutely on it, and uh, and that's been the story of conservation in so many arenas. I know one thing that I'll quickly hand it to, to Dr. Pollock is that one thing we're doing uh, quite a bit of work, uh, you know, really throughout the, the, the coastal US, um, but it, particularly in areas that are real susceptible to siltation, is that to your point you know, how many shucks can you get back in the water? And that's where the role of using alternative materials, be it crushed limestone, concrete, um, a number of River these. River rock. Yeah, clean materials that the the, the spat can attach to. Um, and so, yeah, so that allows these areas that basically have turned into just soft bay bottom that would never turn into anything, uh, at least in, in, in generations, um, we're able to get those restored. And then, and, and Jenny, I know you can say a lot more about that and other methodologies because you spend a lot of time on that.
6: I mean, that's the questions, the questions you just asked are so good and so big. And like, these mm-hmm. are the things that I wrestle with every single day. And like the short answer is yes, we have to do all the things that you named, you know, we need to get every shell back in the water, but we can't just do that. Right. We have to, you know, this is why I've been very pleased working with our state, resource management agency because you know you have to protect what's there you can't let it get so bad that restoration needs to happen you need to have management actions that are sensitive and responsive and can rapidly make changes throughout a harvest season for example or during a storm season Um, you have to restore so it's kind of this continuum of management and conservation restoration aquaculture is really a game changer because People want to eat fresh seafood and they're not going to stop wanting to eat fresh seafood and they're not going to want to eat it out of a tank in a building. They want to eat it out from the natural environment and aquaculture is going to provide that too. You know, I think that things got really bad because people weren't paying attention or people just didn't know it was bad. You know, you wake up, like you said, and it's 80% is gone. That was not because people were letting that happen. It really was, was not, people weren't aware of it until it was brought to their attention And in a short, you know, like I said, about two decades, all of this innovation, all of this energy has really exploded to help come from different perspectives to solve this problem. So I'm, I mean, I'm a hopeful person and I feel like that energy means that there's going to be new approaches and smarter people who come and continue to improve upon the approaches that we have now. But, but yes, you're right. I mean, it's sort of all hands on deck everybody's ideas are going to get a turn because that's where we are to try to bring this resource back and to not lose any more than we already have.
0: Mac, you you keep looking at me. Have you got, have you got a question? I do. I I have one question that, so, I know an interesting fact I don't know why I know it, but I know I knew oysters play a big factor in filtering of the water, but then another fact was that they sometimes can change from male to female. Is that for of like to the survival of the reef, or what are the factors that cause that biological change or whatever it is?
6: You ready for a biology class? Yes. yes, yeah,
2: absolutely. every day.
6: All right. So <laughs> oysters are what we call protandrous hermaphrodites, which means that in lots of organisms, especially in the marine environment and aquatic environment are like this. So they're hermaphrodites, which means that they can be male or female, switch between. But protandrous means that they start mostly as males when they're small. And as they grow larger, you have more females that are larger. And they can do this you know, during their lifetime, they could start as one and become the other. There have been cool experiments where people have put like all male oysters together to see, and they can have them switch to females. It generally happens in the wintertime because they don't have any reproductive material, no gonad present so they can switch. Um, but the, the biological reason behind it, um, which is really interesting and makes a lot of sense when you think about it, is that an egg is much larger and takes a lot more energy to produce than sperm. So it makes sense that generally the larger oysters are going to be more female because it takes a lot more energy and a lot more diverting of that growth potential to create a million eggs than it does to create a million sperm. So for, oy- for oysters and other organisms that have that life history strategy, that's why we think it exists.
2: Hmm. Well, that, the It may, more, makes sense. Nature's brilliant. The it, more it, you know. Yeah.
6: So there'll be a quiz. At the end of the <laughs>
1: okay. I have heard the word amorphodont. I've heard that before in relation to deer. Occasionally, there's a, uh, like a doe. This got antlers,
4: right? Hmm. Happens in plants, yeah. Uh, oh,
2: yeah,
5: there's fish. There's fish species that happens in. Right.
4: There's It's uh, famously
2: persimmons.
4: Oh, persimmons! Uh, yeah, they're it, they're dioecious. I think Butterf- Butterflies, you can, are too. you can,
2: uh, supposedly, you can give them a sex change operation. Oh, yeah, type.
4: you can damage a persimmon a lot, and sometimes it will swap over to a female. That's documented.
1: So, we the, oyster, the whole oyster thing, I'll let you think about that for a second, Mac. But the whole oyster thing, we hear these rumors about don't eat them in the months of an R. It, it, is that just an old wives' tale, or is that back from when we didn't have really good refrigeration?
6: That's exactly it. That's exactly it. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's, it's from when there wasn't refrigeration. And I mean, even now there are limits there. You can pull timetables from your state to see how long the oysters can be out of the water before they need to be put on ice or put in refrigeration. Because of course, in the summer, it's extremely short period of time, but in the winter, you know, they could maybe be sitting on the the deck of the boat all day long.
1: Yeah. Wouldn't want that. Rob, you got a question?
3: One of the things I like to ask folks when they're whenever they're working on these conservation projects or research projects is just what gives you hope for what you do that, that the work that y'all do will make a difference?
6: I mean, one of the coolest, most satisfying things, this is really simple is, I mean, you can pull up Google earth and you can look at these spots in the Bay where we've been doing restoration work and you can see them from space. I mean, we literally have created habitat that exists and it's going to, It's going to last. We're building them in the right ways. And the places that are protected, like Pat said, we're directing our efforts into places where we know it's going to have, you know, it's going to last. And that's very satisfying for me. I mean, the other piece of it is, you know, I'm a professor here at the university. I have lots and lots of students who have come and worked in my lab and have asked really interesting questions. And we just keep getting better and better at what we do, getting more efficient. Like Pat said, restoring oyster reefs is super expensive. We're finding ways to be more efficient to make sure that what we do is, is the best bang for the buck. And, um, you know, there's a network of people across the world that are doing it as well. And so we're, we're sharing ideas. And I, I think that, um, you know, we have nowhere to go, but, you know, getting better than we were before. And that's always going to be a benefit.
5: I think that's, that's, that's one of the things you're most hopeful about because I can tell you this 10 years ago. Well, hence the, sort of to Toxie's point of enchanties of waking up and there's, you know, there's 80% gone. And we all know the funny thing is we didn't just wake up. We just woke up to the fact that that had been going on. And you go back 10 years and people just didn't talk about oysters. I mean, they did, but not as much. And I'll give you, now flash forward to there was some oyster management that was um, really pivotal um, this last couple of years in Texas. And it's been happening in various states, but we'll just frame it around the Texas example. and uh, we had produced a, a sticker, uh, an oyster sticker that said join CCA, I like the old redfish stickers here from here, so they literally I go all them. the way back to the redfish wars. And so it the join CCA oyster sticker, which is essentially looks like a rock with join <laughs> CCA on it, and people went nuts for them. To me, that's one of those moments where you wake up just a little more optimistic than the day before, because if people are willing to put an image of an oyster <laughs> on the bumper, of their pickup truck or on their boat or on their cooler or whatever, man, that means that they are starting to get it. And yeah. when people start to get it. That creates movement. It became so a movement happen, probably,
4: And people yeah.
5: are
2: getting it. Yeah. The thing yeah. that answers that question Rob said to me is you, you, get around enough and you realize and this is an exact you know numerical science most people really do care they really do but you have to be able to connect with them and let them see and taste and feel and that's why the science is so important because it's the truth it's not some subjective you know uh agenda or whatever um and then the other thing i'd say is why what we're doing today and what you you know from a you know public relations and uh, you know messaging standpoint is so important how do you get more people to care well okay you get the first person to care and then that person can help get two or three people to care and those people spread to more people that's how you do that you know and so this just this today i know we will affect people that understand now it's very serious and they're going to care more especially the closer they are to it the more they enjoy marine whale life. Uh the mother they enjoy oysters. They're gonna care more. Yeah. You know. And, and they realize yeah. they can't just stand there and wait for someone else to do something about it, you know. Whatever you can do, if nothing else, every now and then ask your restaurant about it. You know?
4: Well gosh, what we do on our farms, I mean not all of us live on the coast, uh, and not everybody can contribute, but we can contribute on our own land, you know. We can uh, all
2: care, because that will uh, end up manifesting itself yeah. in your life yeah. if you truly do care about the resources.
4: But my point is, is you know, everything goes downhill, and they're at the bottom of the hill they where they are. And so we can help up at the top of the hill as well on our, our streams and drainages and when we're disking the ground, and, you know, all that stuff. It adds up. So, Dr. Pollock, do these— That's uh,
6: exactly right.
1: Do these Texas oysters uh, occasionally have pearls?
6: You know, none of these oysters really have pearls very often. I mean, I've been shucking oysters for about 15 or 20 years now, and I think I've found three or four. And I think... One of them was in Texas, and the oh, don't, no, don't,
2: no, no. Bobby's looking for another novel idea <laughs> to write a, a thriller about the the pearl. You know, the Black Pearl from Texas. Don't, don't give me any information. Yeah, about I it. was, <laughs> I was just curious, <laughs> just, just curious.
1: Well, this has been really interesting. Doesn't it really that has. A, that was a really good point about them being at the bottom of the hill. Yeah.
4: Oh, that, it's
6: that. a great point i'm so glad you made it i think it's yeah. a perfect way to think about things if He's we can totally make the right. water
4: uh better by the you know yes. instead of worse by the time it gets there then Oof. then we're also helping
2: oh uh, just think about Absolutely. all the good zillion tons of petro fertilizers get sent your way Mm. Uh, lots of things yeah so oh yeah
4: that's why it's yeah. important to keep our drainages you know, keep stuff growing in them that can filter all of that and
1: well about this time we always look around and say what did we learn and we have i think we've all learned something in this one that i don't think any of us knew that 80 percent of the oyster reefs
2: no. had had disappeared Mm-mm. i knew they were imperiled and that's it that's all. But I,
4: I saw so many parallels to what we do on land. Uh, oh gosh! Compared to yes. what they do, yes. you know that oh, yeah. that oyster has somewhere has to have somewhere to stick, just like a baby quail or turkey has to have bare ground underneath the vegetation. What did they, what do they say
2: know? constantly? Habitat, habitat, which habitat which is our substrate. Habitat. All habitat yep. talk about is habitat. Mm. So. Yeah.
1: Wow. Well, you guys have been great guests. You've, uh, we, we, we learned something and we're, we, we, boy, we have a lot of empathy for what you guys have going on. And I'm sure our audience listening to this will. That, so one of the ways is they can join the CCA. Absolutely. Um, is, Pat, is there anything else? Or is, uh, Dr. Pollock? is there some way to contribute directly to what you guys have going on there?
5: You know, they can, they can join CCA. They can contribute to the Habitat Program. A lot of that funding is going to Oyster Work right now. We're doing a lot of that um i'll tell you this sort of to some of our themes about making sure people are aware is um and i know this is something that that you mentioned to your listeners you got a great listenership of folks that are educated on a lot of conservation issues some of them may not be coastal like we've alluded to um they can share this podcast with friends is one of probably the best things they can do is an informed podcast like this and getting to hear um, those great questions you all asked and, and experts like Dr. Pollack, if they can share with people that this may not be their number one focus, but if they'll listen, uh, they may not be surprised. It might get on their top five lists. Yeah, my.
6: Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I really appreciate the comments at the end that really link this into land management, which is a foreign thing for me, but you know, it all comes down to Habitat everywhere. It seems like no matter where you look. So I appreciate gotcha. that making the link there.
4: Good.
1: Yeah, that, is, that really is good. So, you know, gosh, it's such
2: a great example of just life again is that, you know, give of the right. You know, my dad would always say, Hey, just look, you want to get ahead in life. Let me tell you, just give, 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 give. And quit worrying about what you get. It'll give you more than you'll ever dreamed of. And that's the same. I mean, that's a great, that's a greater message about the earth we live on and the, you know, the land and the seas and the waters. You know, give, 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 give. And what a great life it is when you finally realize you're giving instead of, you know, taking all the time, you know, just from a philosophical standpoint. So people like y'all, people, organizations like that, give people a conduit. They just don't realize they're getting a bigger gift than just what happens with their dollars. And so I just want to encourage everybody listening, you know, the more you care, just again, take matters in your own hands, do it yourself, join, send money to a cause you love, but take some action. Don't just stand by and watch it you know, and join up in your life with it. Yeah, that's a a great point.
1: Well, look, uh, thank y'all. Before we close out, is there
5: anything else you guys would like to say? I just thank y'all. Thank y'all for everything you're doing, uh, both on land and in the water. It it matters. I mean, The educational component of this podcast is is priceless. So thank you.
2: Likewise. Yes,
6: thank you for the opportunity. And yeah, to speak to a new audience, really appreciate it, really grateful. Thank you.
2: It is our gratitude
1: big time for y'all. So this particular podcast has been brought to you by the Leopold Sunglasses. And you know that's something you need when you go to the coast. You definitely need a good pair of polarized sunglasses. They make a great one. And look, we had a listener to our podcast. The guy's name is Trip Hill from, ironically, Destin, Florida, that emailed the other day and said, Look, I enjoy listening to y'all so much. I would, I'm an operator for Chick-fil-A. I would like to send y'all lunch from chick-fil-a so today we had all sorts of food from chick-fil-a it delivered. was so good
3: was. thank you it was
1: dudley ate trip. three sandwiches <laughs>
2: three brownies whatever it's like our buddy bob Dixon used to say i'll take any given amount it, it was delicious I,
4: i've never put a homegrown tomato on a chick-fil-a sandwich I it was so good it was fantastic <laughs> It, it really was. It was.
1: So we wanted to say thank you to to uh, Trip Hill and thank you to Chick Fil yeah, A. Yeah, thanks Trip,
4: thanks Chick Fil A.
1: And we've always wanted Chick Fil A to be to help sponsor our television show of and course. stuff. So maybe this will be the entree <laughs> in And we <laughs>
4: would accept lunch from from anybody. You know, you,
1: you know, through the years uh, we have <laughs> shipped a lot of pond fertilizer to over to atlanta and it would say a t- chick-fil-a headquarters there's a bunch of guys at chick-fil-a that manage fishing ponds. oh yeah and we've mm-hmm. we've sent them some stuff but anyway i'm getting off subject here this you has been are. a lot of fun mac have you got anything <laughs> else you want to add Good to go. yep yep dr jennifer pollock thank you so much for being with us thank you and pat uh, look you we always enjoy you we want to go fishing sometimes so please don't forget about you it you you betcha, go, Bobby.
5: You betcha. let's do it let's do always a
3: Yeah,
1: Rob, you got a smile. Is anything else on your mind?
3: No, I mean, oysters need a big PR team because they can't do much talking themselves. So watch the film when it comes out in November. It's going to be a cool one.
4: I like that. It is. Yeah,
5: yeah, it's going to be a great one. It's going
1: to be great. All right, guys, we, all, uh, we appreciate y'all. Why don't you say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss
4: the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuzz Strickland.